0: Power black men to live extraordinary lives. Shadow the stereotypes. Power black men. Power black men. Shatter the stereotypes. Power black men to live extraordinary lives. Shadow the stereotypes. Shadow the stereotypes. Power black men to live extraordinary lives. Welcome to Shatter the Stereotypes, where the intention is to empower black men to live extraordinary lives. This show is based on the simple idea that every black man is capable of creating inner peace, dynamic health, great relationships, and financial abundance. Therefore, we provide insights and strategies to educate, motivate, and inspire black men to reach their full potential and create the life of their dreams. So if you're ready for some high-octane motivation and inspiration that supports and empowers you to live the life you were born to live, Get ready to shatter the stereotypes so you can build a life that lights you up and positively impacts the world. So now let's shatter the stereotypes with your host, Coach Michael Taylor. Hello and welcome to Shatter the Stereotypes, where our intention is to empower black men to live extraordinary lives. You see, there's never been a shortage of black male role models there's only been a lack of exposure of those role models. So the intention here is to showcase and highlight black men who are doing amazing things in the world. And joining me today is a guy who is doing just that. His name is Dr. Amon Perry, and he's a professor at the University of Louisville, Kent School of Social Work. So without further ado, let's welcome him to the show. Dr. Perry, how are you doing this evening? I'm pretty good, Michael, how about you? All right, doing fantastic, man. So glad you've taken the time to, to join us on the podcast. As mentioned we want to highlight and showcase black men who are doing amazing things and you are definitely doing that we're going to talk a little bit about your work and your book but first of all let's kind of jump in with a few icebreaker questions so first of all tell us where you're from and give us a little bit of an idea of what it was like growing up for you
1: okay um i live in louisville kentucky uh but i'm from montgomery alabama so uh alabama is home um what was it like growing up? I, I growing up was interesting. My my dad was was in the military, so uh, my family bounced around a good bit, bit. Uh we lived in a number of different places, everything from North Dakota to Honolulu, uh Columbus, Mississippi, and a, a handful of other places as well. So uh, we, we bounced around a good bit until my mom and dad got divorced and then we uh, settled there in Montgomery where my mother. And when I talk, I sound like I'm from Alabama, so <laughs> I got to claim it even you know whether I wanted to or not. But, I, uh, but again, Alabama is home. Um, yeah, I... Uh... a big family uh, surrounded by a lot of love, uh, a lot of encouragement, uh, grew up believing that whatever it is I wanted to do, if I set my mind to it, I could do it. And anything that I didn't do or hadn't done, it was only because I hadn't either set my mind to it or I just hadn't had long enough to figure it out. So, uh, And I owe that to my folks. They 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 set me out with a course to to be confident and to blaze my own trail. And so uh, those are things that I've sort of always been appreciative of and, and try to be half of as much of an inspiration and a rock of stability to my own kids as, as my mother was to me. So um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit about me. Uh, nice. when, yeah, when, when I'm not working, uh, again, I, I went to school in Alabama, did my undergraduate work at Alabama State, a small HBCU in my hometown and did all my graduate work at the university of alabama so when i'm not uh when i'm not working and hanging out with the family i'm usually watching college football so that's all of that as a function of where i'm from
0: there you go all right so name a woman who
1: inspired you to be who you are oh that's easy daisy perry my mother
0: okay and name a man that you look up to and admire
1: a man uh let's go marshawn brown that's my stepdad
0: okay Yeah. Now, name a book that you love and tell me why you love it.
1: Dr. Seuss. Oh,
0: all the places you'll
1: go. Right.
0: Um, Isn't it amazing how Dr. Seuss, because I mean, I'm 60 uh and I still love Dr. Seuss. (laughs) I I still love Dr. Seuss.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? I, I think I, I think this is a title of a book, Everything You Need to Know You Learned in Kindergarten. I, I think that's a title of a book, but, uh, I, but I found it to be true, though, right? Um, yeah. When you think about some of the core and basic principles you learned as a, as a small four, five, and six-year-old kid, if, if it's possible to hang on to those things and sort of Develop a routine of implementing and practicing those things. If if you can do that in a relatively consistent manner, for the most part, you'll you'll be fine. And imagine a world if all of us did that, right? If all of us stuck to those core principles that we were that we were taught and that we learned in, in elementary school. So yeah, so so Dr. Seuss is a go-to for me. It's also the case that much of the way that I understand the world is through either cartoons or hip hop music. So which is a weird and interesting sort of a juxtaposition. <laughs> um but i oftentimes make references to to cartoons or to hip-hop because again that's the way that i understand the world but if i didn't go with uh dr seuss older places will go um i think another one that was really really inspirational for me was carter g woodson's uh miseducation of the negro Okay. Uh, so so those are two go-to's for me
0: so so let's let's move over to we're talking culture so if you love movies, name one of your favorite movies.
1: This is easy for me, New Jack City. New Jack City is the best thing in the history of cinema as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, New Jack City. I think right. it was a, a perfect microcosm of American society and culture. Uh, the, the combination of patriarchy and capitalism and the ways in which uh, those things lead to exploitation and uh, which is as american as american pie chevrolet and baseball But then as soon as black people start to learn the rules of the game and start to play the game by, game by those rules America tries to flip the script and say no, 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 we can't do that anymore So anyway, so I, we, we could do a whole semester on new jack city, but <laughs> new, new jack city is, is is my favorite movie for all of those reasons
0: Okay, so if I grabbed your phone right now your mp3 player who would be on your playlist?
1: Oh, man, you get everything from Tupac to Frank Sinatra to uh, Katy Perry to Young Jeezy and and everything in between. I got off the treadmill earlier this, uh, uh, about an hour or so ago, and the last thing I was on was a group called the Lawn Boys. And it's a local group from my hometown in Montgomery, Alabama, a group of kids who, well, they aren't kids anymore, but um, they grew up in a neighborhood called Southline, and and they had a couple of sort of local hits and, and so on and so forth. So anyway, so you get a little bit of everything. Again, m- music is a place for me to go to sort of escape the the monotony of the the everyday. And so uh, during this time of year, it's not uncommon to find me on the treadmill, sort of zoning out when the weather is decent. I just take laps around the block, and that's how I clear my mind. So there you go. Lawn Boys was the last thing on the MP4.
0: Now, if I gave you a magic wand and you could create anything your heart desired, what would your life look like 10
1: years from now? Hmm, This is after I make myself independently wealthy. (laughs) That can be a part of it. Okay, well, so that's going to be first. Uh, (laughs) After I make myself independently wealthy, the second thing I would do is I would eradicate any and all division of labor along gender lines i would degender parenting that's what i would do oh, so wow. i would i would i would make myself independently wealthy i would do that for me and then my gift to the world would be i would de-gender parenting so that every single kid would have two people a mother and a father who did not stop and think is this my job because i either have an x or y chromosome but they would just say you know what That kid has 23 of my chromosomes. And so whatever it is that needs to be done, I'm going to jump in and do it. Mm. That will be my gift to the world after I make myself independently wealthy.
0: There you go. Now, there are some people who are pretty pessimistic about the future, while others are pretty optimistic. So where do you fall on the spectrum between optimism and pessimism for the future in general? Where do you fall?
1: Hmm. Can I ask a follow up. Are, are we talking optimism and pessimism for me, or are we talking for the world? In general, just in, in general. general. Uh, I, I, I guess I got to. I, I got to go optimism. I, I can't say pessimism, right? I, I got to. If, if I'm not optimistic, what what am I going to do tomorrow? You know, and, and why would I do it? You know what I mean. So, so I'm, I'm going to go optimism. If, if we're talking about Specifically for me, I'm I'm really, really optimistic. But for the world in general, um, I'm fairly optimistic even still. Okay. I, I got to be because otherwise, what's our reason for being?
0: I agree. So now I'd like to introduce Dr. Perry, the professional. So tell the audience what you do.
1: Okay. I'm a professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Louisville. Um, I tell my students that basically the way my job works is... Uh, my job is to go out and learn as much about a topic that is of interest to me and share it with as many people who are willing to listen. And so in other words, there are three realms of responsibility at my job and, and for pretty much any, any academic, uh, particularly an academic at kind a of research university. So uh, first and foremost is my research. My research has two arms to it. One is uh, fathers and involvement with their children two is uh, black men and their contributions to family functioning. So my research revolves around those two topical areas. Um, the second realm of responsibility is teaching. Uh, as it stands now, I teach intro to social work. So uh, it's a class for mostly freshmen and sophomores, students who um, feel like they may have an interest in becoming a social worker, but they're just sort of filling it out and want to see whether or not this is something that they want to spend their life doing. Uh, and so we go through about 10 different fields of practice, try to debunk some myths. Folks have some preconceived notions about what they think social work is, usually because they've seen it on like law and order or some bad sort of Hollywood depiction or portrayal that paints social workers in this really, really weird light. But anyway, so we spend some time debunking myths and introducing them to about 10 different fields of practice. So there's the research, there's the teaching, and then there's a the service component uh, service to the local community. I serve on a couple of nonprofit boards here in town, um, service to the university. I, I get stuck doing committee work at the university. And then I uh, also serve on a couple of uh, professional boards that are sort of national professional boards in the field of social work. So research, teaching, and service, those are the realms of responsibility with the first two taking precedence over the the third Um and my university is a research university. So the honest truth is the thing that we spend most of our time thinking about and doing is the research, because that's the thing that's rewarded in in our field. So, but I owe a lot to the the educators who coach me up and train me as a as an emerging scholar and as a, a young person. So I, I take my teaching seriously. I think that um for me, education is is a lot like uh HGTV. And so I tell my students that once you learn things, you cannot unlearn them. And it's a lot like going from watching that small TV that sat on the big TV at your grandmother's house to watching a 75 inch flat screen in 4K. Right. The world sort of opens up to you and you you just can't go back to watching the small TV that sits on the big TV. The world is, is no longer the same. You You won't be the same once you become a learned and educated person. So I take that responsibility very, very seriously.
0: Nice. <clears throat> now, one of my books is titled, The Cure for Onlyness, A Black Man's Guide to Joy, Passion and Purpose. And the book addresses the feeling of loneliness that we as black men sometimes feel when we're the only black person or the only person of color within an environment. So I'm absolutely certain that you've had that experience. And if so, how do you deal with it?
1: So to answer your question, absolutely. I've, I've, I've experienced that, uh, several, several times. Um, and, and I don't have to tell you this, but I'm sure you already know it. I would imagine most of your listeners know as well, every sort of step or every rung that you ascend on whatever this sort of professional ladder is the lonelier or the only it gets. Right, um, you find yourself in really, really rarefied air. Um, so, how to deal with that? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, think I like to think of myself as a as a pragmatist and as a as a realist. And so, I just I just deal with things as they come. Now, it's also the case that I mentioned to you that I'm an ex-military brat, so I have quite a bit of experience being the new guy, right? Um, I'm also, so anyway, so in addition to having quite a bit of experience being the new guy, um, I'm also from a neighborhood in Montgomery, Alabama that was inhabited by Crips, Bloods, Vice Lords, and Gangster Disciples. But it was Montgomery, Alabama, so there was still a whole bunch of racist white people too. And so being able to sort of, uh, I think code switch is the language that's oftentimes used, code switch, So to build and develop and cultivate relationships in a strategic manner um, is something that I grew up having to do. Um, you, You wouldn't have made it out of the neighborhood had you not been able to do that. So it's almost a sort of a Darwinian survival of the fittest type situation, right? The people who don't develop those types of skill sets, they don't make it. Um, And so for those of us who were able to sort of figure that out and navigate that and be able to successfully negotiate it, it's something that you can take with you. It's also the case that my first full-time job was in Washington, D.C. in the House of Representatives. And so I learned there, if I didn't learn anything else, that what you say matters less than whether or not you can say it in a way that resonates with other people. So, what that means is you necessarily have to spend time sort of thinking about and assessing people to see what drives them, what motivates them. Because if it is you're looking to get something out of them, you do yourself a lot of favors by being able to frame and craft your message in a way that is more likely to land with them, even if it means it doesn't come across or is framed as a way that you would initially or intuitively put it. So, I think all of those things put together have uh, helped me. Deal with this sense of onlyness that you that you mentioned. I think.
0: Yeah, and I, I I get a sense that you mentioned Darwin, and you know he always said that the ones that will survive would be the ones who could adapt to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that ability to adapt to change, to adapt to environments, to adapt to you know like I said, the different segments of society is is, is the key. To success, uh, as a man who happens to be black, obviously we 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 become really good at adapting. Uh, I think that's 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 one of our gifts. I think that's how we've survived in this country: our ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. But I also know that it can be lonely sometimes. Uh, as black men, I know that you know. My very first book, I wrote a book called "Brothers, Are You Listening?" A success guy for the new millennium. And the very first chapter was called the That's What White People Do mentality. (laughs) And in that chapter, I talked about how most of my life, you know, I've been accused of being a sellout because of how I speak and because I used to love to surf and and ride skateboards and and listen to rock music. So, you know, there, there can be that almost disconnection because you're attacked because maybe you think a little differently. But once again, I think it comes back to adaptability because I've always been comfortable with my ethnicity. I've always been comfortable with my blackness, but I also trust my own heart. I also trust how I feel what works for me, and I was never afraid to do things that worked for me, even though my peer group may have disagreed. So it's important for us to have that sense of adaptability as we navigate through this thing called America. Now. There's a lot of talk about the lack of black male teachers. So as a black professor, what do you think we can
1: do possibly to change that? What can we do to change that? Um, I, I I think that that's a really good question. Again, you're talking to someone who works at a university where there are, if I'm not mistaken, close to 1800 faculty and maybe 150 of them are black, right? Um, so less than 10%. Um, and when you're talking full-time professors at the rank of professor, which is at the highest rank, there may be like 27, 28 at the whole university, right? Which is outrageous. Um, that To me, that borders on criminal, right? Um, and so this is a really, really important question because it's not all that uncommon for me to get students to show up, and this is obviously pre-pandemic, just show up in my office unsolicited, no appointment, um, no nothing, just cold call, knocking on my door saying, "Uh, doc, I don't know you and you don't me, but you don't know me, but I heard you were the black dude in social work. Mm. Right? (laughs) And so folks are just looking for a familiar face. Right? and what's interesting is I've been at the University of Louisville for twelve years so I've been there for quite quite some time now and although chronologically most of the people that I work with are still older than me from a sort of a tenure standpoint I've been there for again a, a good bit of time um, and in many circles I not just me but people who otherwise you wouldn't think would be seen as sort of senior scholars. Like that's sort of the space that I'm in, which is crazy because again, like when I'm not at work or when I'm walking to class, like I'm literally listening to like the same mixtapes that my students are listening to. You know what I mean? Um, And so, I mean, so that's cool. Um, and I appreciate having people sort of look to me in that way. But I think that, again, it's another space and another area that's really, really lonely, right? <laughs> um, and when I think about, to me, like this sort of the sad, sad reality that folks just show up again, sometimes not even in my major, right? Um, but they're just looking for somebody to have some discussion, conversation with about, hey, like, this is what happened today. Like, what should I think about this? Am I tripping if I'm believing this? Or like, what's going on here? So on and so forth. Um, especially like first generation students, right? Um, so anyway, so, so back to your question, what, what can we do? What should we do? Um, I, I think we just got to get more aggressive. And by we, I mean like these universities uh, the school systems. We have to get more aggressive about recruiting. Um, I was getting ready to say people of color, but let me stop. I don't want to say people of color. I want to speak specifically about black people, right? Because sometimes people say people of color, like that's coded language for like international folks. You see what I'm saying? Sure. Um, and again, I'm a I'm a black man who is a son of the American South, and so I know better than to support state-sanctioned discrimination. Like, I'll be the biggest butthole in the world if I were to do anything like that. So when I say this, I want to be clear that I harbor no ill will, no animus toward any group of people. Again, that runs counter to my people's entire existence in this place. But I also believe that America has a special sort of hatred for Black people, right? Um, And given that that's the case, I think that the remedy should be special and unique. Uh, And so we ought to be targeting black communities. We ought to be, and when I say target, I'm talking about funneling additional resources aimed specifically at black communities uh, to to inhabit these classrooms and these universities with people who look like the student bodies that universities are clamoring to recruit because it fits and supports their diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives, right? You gotta be able to do that on the faculty side as well and the administration side, right? Cause you gotta have decision makers. Uh, Cause as we both know, right, If, as has been said if you don't have a seat at the table, right you might be on the menu. <laughs> you know what i mean right uh and so in so anyways I, so, I, so we have to get more aggressive we have to take these things seriously we have to put put our money where our mouth is and and the the biggest thing that we need is we need courage because there's always going to be a faction of our society that pushes back and say well that's reverse discrimination or you can't use race as a metric for creating different types of programs. And uh, no, that's foolishness because again, America has been willful and intentional about locking our people out of these situations. And so we got to be willful and intentional about redressing those issues and creating the type of equality that America claims it's all about. Right. Um, And so I think that's what's needed. We need courage, we need access to resources, we need seats at the table. And we also got to have the right kind of folks in those seats because um, some of our people, even if they land in these spots and spaces, some of them um, are skin folk, but they ain't kin folk. Right? (laughs) Like let's be clear, some of these folks, Harriet Tubman would have left behind, (laughs) right? (laughs) <laughs> right. And so I think we need to be strategic about once we get access to opportunities and we're looking to create pipelines, I think we need to be really, really intentional about the people that we put or we nominate for these positions, because uh, if we don't, then we could have folks who don't mean us well and set us back. Right. So again, so I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm even really responsive to the question, but these are the things that come to my mind. Right? Yeah, I think-
0: and, and I think you're, you're right on. Uh, systemically, obviously, there are some issues. Uh, but I think one thing that's been missing from us mm-hmm. is exposure. How do we put people like yourself mm-hmm. in front of the young Black man so they can see what's possible? Because if we pay attention to mainstream media, what are we going to get? So the reason that I launched this podcast is I wanted to put people like you up front so that young Black men could be exposed to conversations with men like yourself because all of my life as i mentioned i've you know i've been accused of <laughs> not being black because of maybe how i think or, or or you know my optimistic attitude but i also know that i believe everybody has a divine purpose and so for me my purpose is to share the information that i've learned with others to empower and especially black men how do we empower black men because Right now, I think if nothing else, we need inspiration, motivation, and education. <laughs> we, we, that's, that's what we need. We need those three things. So how do we inspire ourselves? How do we educate ourselves? And having these types of dialogues, I believe, contributes to that. As, and that's, that's my way of coming up with a solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I, I think it's, it's, as you mentioned, it, it goes a lot deeper than that, but when we can give people like yourself the opportunity to get in front of young men and say, hey, look, this is what's possible. Mm-hmm. Look at where I started and look at where I ended up. I mean, to me, that's inspiring, And I think we, we, we really need more of that now more than ever. So with that being said, why did you decide to become a professor anyway?
1: Okay, so here we go. So, so there's a Reader's Digest version and there's a sort of a, a little bit more extended version. I'm gonna try to, brevity has never been a strong suit of mine, right? But, <laughs> uh, but, but I'm, I'm gonna try to, try to give, you, uh, uh, give you the answer, but do so in a way that doesn't uh, drag the thing out. So long story short, when I was in like the eighth, ninth and 10th grade, I was a knucklehead, right? Like school was a thing that I did because my mother sent me and I would get in trouble if I didn't go, you know what I mean? Um, but I'm from a place where, and it's so interesting what you were just talking about. You talk about the exposure and talking about the inspiration and the visualization and so on and so forth. I, 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 I tend to agree with everything that you were saying there because I think it's tough to develop a vision beyond your block, right? Yes. Uh, and so, it, so and, and it's also the case that I grew up in the 90s. This was like before the internet. So it's like you couldn't just sort of log on to the World Wide Web and start envisioning these things that were sort of foreign to you. But I think even, even in a contemporary way where you still have access to those types of things, I think folks, st- it's something different to have it tangible to you. You know what I mean? Um, so, in a way, so when I was in like junior high and the early part of my high school, days, I was just sort of going through the motions. And when when I was set to graduate, the benchmark for success in my neighborhood was whether or not your car had automatic windows and the air-conditioned work. So if you didn't have to lean over and roll the window down, if you just push a button, like you were the man in my neighborhood, right? And so I'll never forget when I was in high school. So I graduated high school in 1997. When I was in high school, there was a car lot that was right around the street from my grandmother's house. And they had a 1992 Honda Prelude on the lot. So again, I graduated in 97. So at the time this car was already five years old, right? So they had a 1992 Honda Prelude. And this was the baddest car you've ever seen in your life. Right? I was like, man, like if I can get my hands on that car, Like, I'm going to be the man in my neighborhood. Like, it had a sunroof. It had a spoiler on the back. It already had rims on it. I mean, it was just like, it was just going to be like magical. Right. So, anyway, I met a guy who ran a rug warehouse. And he told me, he said, you know, once you graduate, you can get a job at the warehouse. And if you do well, you can run the forklift and you can make eight and a quarter an hour, $8.25 an hour. And so I started doing the math. I was like, okay, eight and a quarter times, 40 hours a week. That's like a little over $300 a week times four. That's a little over $1,200 a month. Man, I could get that Honda Prelude and I'll still have money to go and hang out on the weekend. Like, And like this was my plan for life, right? Um, until, um, Until I got to the 11th grade, Welcome to a woman named Vivian Ledbetter. She was my 11th grade liter- literature teacher, and she kept trying to force the Iliad and the Odyssey down our throats and Jeffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It's like, come on, like, I'm not reading that. Like, no, again, nobody in my neighborhood knows anything about the woman of Bath. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what we talk about in, in my neighborhood. And again, I'm going nowhere with that anyway, right? So she recognized that I was, there was no chance I was gonna do anything with the Iliad, the Odyssey, or the Canterbury Tales. She comes to me, she says, what are you interested in? She called me one day after school. And I said, well, like, what do you mean? She's like, what are you interested in? I said, well, Tupac just came out with a double album, All Eyes on Me, and it was the best thing in the history of music as far as I was concerned. So she said, okay, we'll bring it in. Like see the CD-ROM had just come out, right? And so Ms. Ledbetter was, well, she was a 70 year old white lady. But to her credit, she sat down in her classroom every single day for about two weeks. And she could only stomach one song. I'm sure her ears would bleed leaving out of that classroom in the afternoon. But to her credit, every day after school for about two weeks, she sat down and she listened to one song from the album. She said, for whatever reason, you like this stuff, and if you're willing to actually do a comparison a, 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 a comparison contrast paper between tupac's all eyes on me versus his me against the world album the album that came immediately before that i'll let you switch your topic for your documented essay which was the major project for 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 the english lit class and so i'm like okay cool anyway long so a little bit shorter that's what I did. So the rest of the class, they were doing Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and like Dante's Inferno and whatever this other stuff was. Meanwhile, I was listening to uh, Me Against the World and All I was on Me and doing a comparison sort of a paper. Well, um, I ended up passing the class and the next year going into my 12th grade year, when I signed up for Home Act, because that's where the girls were, they wouldn't let me take Home Act because I had a special request on my choice form for a journalism class. Ms. Ledbetter had recommended me to write for the school newspaper and had worked out an arrangement to where I would do a music column. So every Tuesday when the new music came out, students would send in recommendations or CDs or cassettes or whatever the case was. I would take it home and listen to it, write a music column and it would appear in the school newspaper. And so anyway, so like that was when like the light bulb went off. Like I can now see the utility of education. So it's not just reading books because the teacher said so, but if you learn, you can actually do something with it and you could possibly put yourself on a track to be able to use this stuff to support yourself through a vocation or a job for the rest of your life. And so at that point, it's like, OK, well, never mind the eight and a quarter at the rug warehouse running the forklift. Maybe I can be like a journalist or something like that. I don't know. Right. And, and so at the time, Ed Gordon, Ed Gordon used to do the news on BET. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And so like I would double up and watch video soul with Donnie Simpson and Sherry Carter. I don't know if you remember Sherry Carter. I had the biggest crush on Sherry Carter. Oh, my God. Anyway, so i could watch donnie simpson and sherry carter and i can get my get my my my, uh, my music fix and then double up and watch the news with ed gordon so anyway so it just sort of put me on a track to realize that there was utility and education long story a little bit shorter when it came time for me to to pick my job i'm a social worker by trade but for any number of reasons i decided to go back and work on a phd because i wanted to put myself in position to train the next generation of social workers and so the reason why I do what I do, this is five minutes of life you will never be able to get back. But in a lot of ways, it's an attempt to, uh, to pay back the people who poured so much into me. Um, because if we were sort of to go over the chronology of my life, it seemed like just at the right time, there were so many people who just showed up and were strategically placed in my life that got me to whatever the next little space was, right? Um, and again, it started with my mother keeping her foot uh, literally and figuratively planted firmly in my backside to keep me out of trouble and keep me going forward but then even when I got beyond whatever the experiences of my family of origin were there were always people strategically placed in my life who said caught me and moved me to the next little station and so if I could be there and so I always feel indebted to those people even to this day Uh, and so if I can serve in that sort of a capacity for anybody else I feel like I've I've served my purpose you talked about purpose a little early Um, what
0: a fantastic story
1: isn't it amazing
0: how teachers and and this is why teachers are so important and it it still amazes me how as a society we don't value teachers because of the impact they have on our lives i had a teacher in elementary school named miss bussy
1: Mm.
0: happened to be a white woman and miss bussy knew um the violent situation that i was in as a kid but she took it upon herself to make sure that when the kids were not in the class and I was the only one there, she'd hug me. And she'd mm. tell me, Michael, everything's gonna be okay. Cause I'd come to school with scars and stuff like that. And CPS was being called on me several times. So she she knew you know, that I just needed that special attention. And she ingrained in me in elementary school that the key to my success in getting my life in order, if you will, was right here. She says, Michael, she says, you're a genius. She said, you're so, so smart. I just need you to focus. She says, if you'll just focus on your work. She says, and use your brain. She says, you can get out of this situation. And in elementary school, she, she was my rock. Cause I was separated from my mom and again, a bad situation, but this woman took it upon herself to give me that special attention and that love and that support that I needed as a kid. And to this day, um, she is probably, after my mom, the most influential person in my life, um, because she set me on the on the path of learning, and understanding that this was the key, and I'm I'm forever indebted to to her.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and just like Dr. Sue said, "Older places, you'll go,"
0: right? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, now I want to talk about what you're really passionate about and what you do. So. You started a program called the For Your Child Program. So tell us a little bit about why you started it and what it was about.
1: Okay, so th- again, a little bit of background. Again, by trade, I'm a social worker, um, and so back in the early 2000s, I was. Uh, you just mentioned CPS, like, I, so if I lived in your hometown, that may have been me knocking on the door, right? Like I was a, a foster care social worker working with kids who the state of Alabama said didn't have parents who were willing or able to take care of. Them. What I found was, as I got to meet families, that wasn't true as often as the state said it was, right? And so we weren't doing really much of anything to reach out to dads. Um And so family services was really cold for moms and kids. Right. Dad was not really even a part of the equation. Right. There was no real expectation that we reach out to dad. There was no expectation that we even know who dad was. There was no expectation that we even asked. I found that curious because um, the agency that I worked for was called the Department of Human Resources. Right. So imagine the irony. Right. Um, At the Department of Human Resources, we were being willful and intentional about cutting ourselves off from half of the kids' family. And so I just started doing, like, reconnaissance work on my own, trying to figure out who these guys were, what their situations were, because I was just looking for resources for the kids. And in tracking down some of these guys, I realized that not a lot of them would have been viable placement options. But all of those men had brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, mothers, brothers, cousins. And surely the kids would have been better off living with a paternal relative rather than just hanging out with us in foster care. You know what I mean? And so... It was it was then when I started to take a real interest in the role that fathers play in the family because I worked for an agency that was supposed to be about supporting families and we were doing the exact opposite right we were pushing dads out man this is crazy this is backwards um i I, I would flash back from time to time to being in miss Ledbetter's class and she would force say to make Beth down in throat right and I would go to my my job and we have to file termination of parental rights petitions to permanently separate kids from their families and they'll be free to be adopted. I would look down at my hands and I, oh my God, like I just killed Duncan, right? Like, just like, no, just like on McBeth, you know what I mean? Um, Because I felt like I had those families' blood on my hands just by going to work and doing my job. I was separating families rather than doing what I thought I was there to do, which was to help people. I found myself complicit in a system of oppression, which is the exact opposite of what I was there to do. And so um, when I went back to graduate school, again, as I mentioned, with the expressed intention to tra- uh, position myself to train the next generation social workers, I had to pick a research topic because a PhD is a research degree. And so for me, it was a natural uh, an organic sort of a fit to work with dads. So the For Your Child project was just basically a continuation of my interest in working with men and working with dads so that uh, they could increase their capacity for taking more active roles in their children's lives. It's also the case that, and I tell people this, I grew up playing Little League baseball, but I wasn't very good. And the coach told me once he said, Paris, swing hard just in case you hit it, right? Uh, and so I figured that if I'm gonna be doing this work, then I need to swing hard just in case I hit it. And to my way of thinking, that was the case, and still is the case, that the biggest area for growth, the biggest opportunity for impact it's working with dads. Again, imagine the situation, this gets back to the second thing I would do with that magic wand you asked me about. Imagine a situation where every single child had two people who would do whatever it was that it took to make sure that that child had a healthy and safe uh, childhood without regard to whether or not they were male, female, man, woman, dad, mom. No, you just had two parents who would go to the nth degree to make sure that you had everything that you need. We would literally change the world overnight, right? And so that is my job. That's what gets me up in the morning uh, to create a situation where every single child has at least two people who will go to the mat to make sure that they have everything they need. And so For Your Child is uh, a project where we enroll non-resident dads into a program that features 28 hours of parent education and some case management services. So we try to work uh, specifically with dads around parenting, co-parenting, communication, conflict resolution, uh, child development, discipline, um, as well as getting them connected to resources in and around the community that can help them either find a job, or if they already have a job, find a job that pays a higher wage, or find a job that works better with their schedule, that allows them to take more active roles in their kids' lives. Um, So anyway, so that's what we do. We've been at it Uh, for a little over five years um, project started through a grant from the federal government and and so what we've learned is that many of the dads that we've worked with um, because they're now resident dads they've been uh, marginalized and pushed aside in some cases away from their children for quite some time now so what we're looking to do now is retool that program so that we can work with a younger set of um parents to get involved and intervene before they get to the point where there's so much uh, co-parenting baggage and co-parenting scar tissue where moms and dads are sort of at each other's throats and not willing to work together in the spirit of cooperation. So our new project is um, taking what we've learned from four-year child and retooling it so that we work with uh, adolescent and young adult parents to do some of the same things, healthy relationships, Responsible parents and economic mobility, that sort of thing.
0: Nice. Now, <clears throat> my specialty is the changing roles of manhood and masculinity in society. It's what I've been writing about for the past 25 years. And I think the most important shift in this country is the a re-emphasis on fathers. Um, because, you know, as men, we've been conditioned to believe that, you know, we have basically three primary responsibilities provide, protect, and procreate. Mm -hmm. The problem is as men, we weren't taught how to connect. And there's a disconnect emotionally that a lot of men experience because we just haven't had the role models, if you will, of men teaching us how to authentically be men. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I loved is I saw a little video that you posted about an exercise that you do with men with some blue and yellow balloons. Tell us about that exercise.
1: Yeah, 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 the the balloon activity. Um, And so one of the opening activities in our curriculum in our fatherhood program is, is what we call the balloon activity. And the setup is we bring the dads into the space and every dad gets a bag full of balloons and you get yellow balloons and you get blue balloons. Blue balloons represent your responsibilities and your obligations, whether it be a mortgage, car payment, student loans, electric bill, whatever the case may be. Yellow balloons represent your children. So the dads write the names of their children on the yellow balloons. They write the names or the title of their responsibility or obligations on the blue balloons. And as you might imagine, the more responsibilities and the more children you have, you might have a handful of balloons depending on what your situation are. So at, All at one time. And again, we would usually have anywhere from 10 to 15 dads in the room. And so there's a lot of balloons. So all at once, we say go. And the activity is designed for the dads to throw all of their balloons up into the air. And the object of the activity is for them to juggle all of their balloons without allowing any of them to hit the ground. Sort of a microcosm for life, right? This idea that you don't want your the ball, you don't want to drop the ball. You don't want the egg to slip through the cracks or whatever case may be. You certainly don't want the balloon to hit the ground. And if any of the balloons are going to hit the ground, you definitely don't want the yellow balloon to hit the ground because that represents your children. Even if your electric bill has to slip for a month or even if the car payment is late, if it hits the ground, that's one thing, but you can't let little Bobby hit the ground. You can't let Sally hit the ground, right? And so 10 to 15 guys 50 60 easily balloons in the air is basically a madhouse right and typically what happens is a dad will get into a space where he overdoes it when he pops one of his balloons into the air and it starts to get away from him and so you got dads bumping into one another you got balloons being crossed over you got people pushing other people's balloons all over the place like it's just going and so in a way and almost inevitably what will happen is as one of those yellow balloons is about to hit the ground uh, without being prompted to one of the other dads will sort of reach down and he'll have just a spare second or two and he'll pop it back up and give the original dad just enough time to get back on his feet, get himself together and keep sort of juggling his balloons. Right. And so at that point in time, our facilitators are instructed to stop the activity and say, okay, well, now did, did everyone see that? And what was the lesson learned from it? Right. And, and the idea there is this, again, this is a teachable moment that suggests to guys that none of us are alone. You don't have to be alone. Right. This parenting work is really, really difficult work. It's almost impossible if you're trying to do it alone. And so you necessarily need support. And so for us, we start to steer them to the idea that there has to be at least one other person whose job it is to assist you and to support you and you support them in this parenting work. And usually we're talking about the child's mom. Right. And so that gives us an opportunity to set a foundation and talk about cooperative co-parenting, because that's the thing that we come back to over and over and over again throughout the 28 hours in the curriculum. But again, whether it be uh, co-parenting or whether it be any other type of relationship, necessarily working together in a spirit of cooperation, as opposed to an isolation or competition, is a much better way uh, to, to get things done. Right. So anyway, so that's an opportunity for us to sort of uh symbolically uh represent that through a fun and engaging sort of an activity it's one that we start with because it helps us to create a foundation for some of the other things that we'd like to talk about and teach in the program
0: that's amazing that yeah. that's a really powerful exercise
1: yeah it's pretty cool yeah, um, yeah. And it, it comes from our curriculum the, cur- the curriculum is developed by the national fatherhood initiative so i can't take credit for developing it but again we put our own spin on it so that We make it sort of come to life in ways that uh, really, really resonate with the dads. And as you mentioned, symbolic as it is, but it's really, really powerful. Um, And the message almost always hits home to the guy.
0: Nice. Now, you are the author of Black Love Matters, Authentic Voices on Marriages and Romantic Relationships. And as a matter of fact, that's how I was introduced to your work. I read an article uh, that you had written, and that's why I reached out to you. Uh, because again, my work is with men and I really put a lot of focus on black men and specifically, and there's this illusion about black men and love. And I'm, I'm looking at and I have not read your book but I have the chapters that I like to go over but I, I, I get the sense that based on what I read and what you were saying is you and I have the same philosophy that obviously as black men we are capable of creating loving intimate, caring relationships, but you very seldom see or hear Black men talking about relationships this way. So first of all, what is the primary message that people will get out of your book? What's the primary message that you want to get across?
1: If, so if we were in an elevator and I only had 30 seconds to tell you what the book is about, I will tell you that the, the book is about Black men loving and wanting to be loved. Right. And, and and this is black men telling you how it is they love and how they want to be loved so that you don't have to rely on media depictions or pop cultural portrayals that will frame us in deficit negative based ways. Because I think that's what you get when you turn on the TV or when you turn on the Internet. Wow. Again, I talked to you a, a, a while ago about. Having uh, some interest in journalism as a as a younger person, and I know that one of the axioms in journalism is this idea that if it bleeds, it leads, right? And so, uh, when we think about the way in which Black men have been and continue to be portrayed in much of the media, um, there's there, there's not much balance to those discussions, right? Um, and and so those, those, those stereotypes, I think, are dangerous, they're harmful, they're problematic, and people absorb those things and it seeps into their skin, into their consciousness, not much different than the lotion that you and I put on our bodies every morning. And people walk around with that and they've created a narrative about who and what we are. Um, and it's one that is not at all accurate when you sit down and actually talk to black men, right? Rather than simply talking about black men. So anyway, so that's what the book is about. It's about how black men love and wanna be loved.
0: Yeah, and and that's the reason why I started this show, um, Shadow the Stereotypes, because as a matter of fact, I wrote an entire book called Shattering Black Male Stereotypes as you can see behind mm-hmm. me here. And I bas- basically break down what I call the 10 most destructive media generated illusions about black men. And one of those illusions is that Black men can't be monogamous. Mm. You know, we, we get attached to this whole you know, rap culture, and you think, OK, so that's how all Black men look at women. And it's not the truth. Um, but I want to break down, uh, just to, just to kind of touch bases on, on your chapters in your book, because uh, I think it's an important book. And, and you're writing more from a research perspective. Is that, again, I haven't read the book, um, and I noticed that you had some other collaborators with you on this book. So tell me a little bit about how this book came about.
1: Yeah, so yeah, as you mentioned, the, the, so the book is based on a study that I conducted that was uh, what we call in the field a longitudinal qualitative study. So in other words, I followed a group of men over a period of four years and did multiple in-depth interviews with them to determine what their perceptions, attitudes, and behaviors were within the context of marriage and romantic relationships but then taking a step beyond and say, okay, well, what were the circumstances surrounding the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows in their relationship so that we could better frame and contextualize whatever their thoughts, beliefs, perspectives and attitudes were. So yeah, so again, given what I do for a living, um, the way that I keep my job is by publishing the the results of my studies. Um, But oftentimes, but I like to think of myself as a community-engaged researcher. And so rather than simply publishing the the results in academic journals that'll be nice for a conference presentation with other academics, but it'll never reach regular people, Um, my interest was in putting them out in book form so that I could uh, create spaces and opportunities to be able to discuss the findings with regular authentic people. Right, and and by regular and authentic, again, I don't mean that as a pejorative to any any group of people, um, especially not to academics. Again, I am an academic, right? But uh, if I'm being honest with you, uh, many academics live in a theoretical and a conceptual sort of a world that may or may not match the lived experiences of the people that they write about, right? And so, um, again, as a community-engaged researcher, my work is in the community again i've been talking about the fatherhood program and so on and so forth so um, if if we aren't if we aren't touching real people with the work then it's sort of often not and and i'm from a place where you couldn't talk about it if you ain't lived it right so um so anyway so authenticity is a word that i heard you use earlier and so it certainly is a, a word that resonates with me um, so much so that it is the first word in the subtitle of the book and so There's a premium on touching real people with the work for all the reasons that you mentioned.
0: Now, with that being said, because time flies when you're having fun. So I want you to give me the cliff note version Mm -hmm. of these chapters so we can go through all what it? is seven of them? I think seven. Yeah. First of all, chapter one from act like a lady, think like a man to four forty four.
1: Yeah. What's that about? Yeah. So, again, I told you much of the way that I, uh, that I understand the world is through cartoons and hip hop music. So um, as the book begins, I get into a story of how way back in 2008, Steve Harvey had a book, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. And people were just going crazy over the book all over the place. And so it was a sort of moment where I realized that, again, like regular everyday people were really, really interested in these notions and these discussions conversations around black love. Right. And it almost seems as though there's a cottage industry surrounding the idea of how to find and keep a good Black man, right? And so so anyway, so what we do there is we start with Steve Harvey's book and we sort of bookend it with Jay-Z's uh, album 444 where he sort of comes out and is more sort of vulnerable and introspective than he typically is. And it's about a ten-year period. So what we do is we review the major sort of pop culture that happens in that time span, and then we also review the major academic literature in that time span, and make the case that we're in sort of a golden age of black male receptivity to being emotionally expressive and vulnerable, right? Um, and so that's the the gist of what's happening in that chapter there.
0: So so let's just let's jump to chapter three. Let's okay. talk. About sex. All right. So give me a give me a breakdown.
1: Yeah. So of course that's a shout out to Salt and Pepper who had a song called Let's Talk About Sex in the maybe late 80s, early 90s or whatever. But anyway, um, yeah, so what so after the first and the second chapters, what we do with the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters, the major themes of the book became chapters, right? So as we went through all of the interviews and, and, and read through all of the transcripts and coded all of them, the major themes, they sort of got their own chapter assigned to them. And sex and intimacy was one of the major sort of issues that guys were talking about. And so obviously sex is something that is really, really important to relationships. But what I think is an interesting finding for people who pick the book up is what, you, what you'll see is that the guys were also interested in exploring this idea of intimacy that didn't even have to relate to or be involved with the notion of sex, right? So guys were interested in how it was that they can develop really, really deep and meaningful relationships, companionships and and friendships with their mates and with their partners, separate and distinct from anything physical at all. And again, that's something that I wouldn't have predicted going into the project. And so I I thought that it was something that people would be interested in hearing about. So we hear a lot from the guys about the way in which those uh, situations influence and impact their relationships over time.
0: Now, chapter four, trials, tribulations, and trauma, um, which I think is a really important um, conversation to have. So touch bases on that.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about the way in which the men's romantic relationships influenced and impacted by previous traumas, right? We're talking about mental health. We're talking about mental illness. We're talking about physical abuse. Unfortunately, in some cases, we're talking about sexual abuse. And we're also talking about what a lot of the guys described as relationship trauma, just basically early relationship experiences that went negative that impacted them into the distant future, right? So as you approach or as you engage men in the here and now, you'll find them acting and behaving in all types of ways. But it's the important question is not what's wrong with you. The question is what happened to you? It's a question we rarely ask, right? And, but we see the manifestations of it. And sure. so when a lot of what we see is the negative and deficit frame depictions and portrayals, what we don't see is the story behind that and what led to it. And so we sort of get into that as the guys were really, really courageous in sharing a lot of their history with me, a lot of their stories with me from the standpoint of things that happened to them that set them on a trajectory, either good, bad, or ugly um, as it relates to their marriages and romantic relationships. And so that's what we we deal with in that particular chapter.
0: Yeah, and one of the things I talk about uh, a lot in, in my books is the importance of making peace with your past understanding how childhood trauma still impacts your life as an adult and being willing to heal those traumas. And again, as Black men, I think we really need to have that conversation more often uh, to help us unpack some of our emotional baggage that Mm -hmm. we don't even realize we're carrying around. Um, Touch on love and manhood real quick. What what do we have there?
1: Yeah, so we can get into the the, the guy's uh, concepts of masculinity, right? So whether or not, so the the core question in that chapter is whether or not being involved in a romantic relationship has influence or impact on their ideas about what it means to be a man. And so for some of the guys, they said it did. And for other guys, they said that it didn't. But then we explore their reasons for responding to the question in whatever ways that they did. What was interesting was that for a lot of the guys, and this is what led to the interest there was, in some of my previous work, what I found is that a lot of men when you talk to them about identity and to define masculinity for themselves, they sometimes struggle with it and they default to simply looking to be the opposite of what they think is feminine. Right. But, but that's, but that's, so not being feminine is not an identity, right? Like that's just sort of looking to reject what you think is sort of either negative or deficit-framed. And so we're looking again, go beyond that. So we wanted to explore that. And we do that in that chapter where we get into the guy's concepts of masculinity and the reasons behind that, really taking a deep dive into those types of discussions.
0: Wow. We need, we need to have another conversation so we could go a little bit deeper in this because I, I, I love where you're going with it. Because this is what I've been writing about for the past 20, 25 years. But my, my, my final question here for you, and first of all, where can people find the book? If they're interested, is that something that's available, or is that only an academic?
1: No, no. Uh, well, so so to answer your question, no, it's, it's you can get it on Amazon. Okay. Um, but a better route would be to go to Roman and Littlefield. That's the the publisher. Um, now, again, it's it's the book is written is based on a study, but it's written in a way that uh, lay people will understand it and get a good bit of use out of it. So it's not a lot of jargon or anything like that in it. I think it's an easy read. Um, but again, because I'm an academic, there's an academic publisher, Roman and Littlefield. And uh, if you use the discount code Lex L E X three zero A U T H twenty, that's Lex thirty off twenty. Uh, Roman and Littlefield is offering a thirty percent discount because, again, um, because it's an academic publisher, the they set the prices in an academic sort of a way. So you can get a 30% discount using the discount code Lex 30 off 20 at checkout. But again, that's only if you go through Romanandlittlefield.com. but the book is available on Amazon and books a million and Barnes and Noble and all those other places, wherever you would find books.
0: So as you were finishing up this book, what surprised you the most?
1: Well, the piece about intimacy, I think, was one. I wasn't expecting that. Um, The the prevalence of the relationship, what the guys were calling relationship traumas, and just how deep-seated that stuff was, right? So just how long people carried that stuff with them and how long it influenced and impacted their relationships. Mm. I I wouldn't have expected that. Um, But I think the biggest thing was I went into this expecting to have to pull teeth in order to get guys to sit down and talk with me and what i found was the exact opposite it was as if they were sitting there waiting to be asked and i showed up and they were like bruh (laughs) i'm glad you're here because again like i had no relationship with these guys previous to the study right like i would it wasn't like we were friends and we were uh had any sort of previous connection um i was people may have known me from my work in the community but other than that uh, these were people who I just came across as a part of the study, and the, the level of courage and, and forthrightness and receptivity they had to sharing what for many of them were some of their deepest, darkest, and most intimate sort of moments, that was eye-opening and certainly surprising. So the biggest sort of surprise was the level of courageousness and openness that the guys exhibited as a part of the project.
0: Well, I will assert that most men, most men really want to have these types of conversations, but they don't even know they're available. (laughs) They don't have access to environments in which these conversations occur. So that's why with my podcast, I give men that opportunity to have these types of dialogues and conversations because deep down we're longing to be loved, period. <laughs> that's, that's what we're longing for. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't have the emotional tools to experience what authentic love really feels like. And so mm-hmm. engaging in these types of conversations and, and, and obviously it goes a lot deeper than that and us talks about you know, emotional healing and stuff like that. But again, I really believe, and especially black men, I think we're hungry for this. I, I, think, I think now more than ever, you know, we're wanting to move past the negative stereotypes, but more importantly, just feel connected to our authentic selves and just to really be comfortable in our own skin and not wear these societal labels and, 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 and wear these masks. I like to call them, the, you know, we wear these masks. And I think men wanna take these masks off. And so once again, that's, that's why I do what I do because I, I give men a space to take those masks off and to get real and to say, hey man, I i I'm, I get it. I, I'm, I'm there for you. I appreciate this space. Because when you create that space of, of safety and give men the freedom to really speak from their hearts, that's where healing occurs. And yeah. uh, we 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 need that now more than ever. So I, I could not
1: agree more. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So with that being said, as we wind down now CS I, I love having these conversations, but time just goes by too fast. But, <laughs> but first of all, how can people connect with you uh, if you've got social media or whatever, if you you know are interested in having people connect with you, how would they connect with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, Armand Perry is the name, uh, University of Louisville. My email address is a r p e r r zero one at louisville.edu um i have a, a facebook account i have a twitter account i even have an instagram and and all of them are armon a-r-m-o-n underscore r underscore perry uh p-e-r-r-y and so i think that's the easiest way to get a hold of me um i would again i so i, I do want to take the time to thank you for sharing your platform with me because i could not agree more that for me the biggest sort of revelation in this whole project was that guys won't To have these conversations and the fact that you've been at it for as long as you have been, I think you're creating the types of spaces that guys are longing for and if not for spaces like yours, guys will be relegated to having to sort of in many ways suffer in silence or just go at it alone, um, which is a recipe for disaster. So again, I want to salute you for the work that you are doing and have done to create and blaze these types of trails for the better part of two decades, um, and creating spaces for n- newer people like me to, to, to step in and talk about the work that we're trying to do, which is, uh, an, an attempt and an opportunity to build on a foundation that folks like you've already created. So, um, so again, I salute you for that.
0: Well, thank you. And, uh, I, I don't believe in accidents. I think, I think everything happens for a reason. And I believe this is a divine appointment that you and I have connected, uh, because we have same intentions and, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure there'll be future collaborations. And I really look forward to that uh, because I, I know you and I are on the same page Absolutely. and we, we have the same commitment. So now I wanna give you an opportunity to just close with your final thoughts to the audience, just whatever comes up for you, whatever you feel like sharing, just speak from your heart and just close out to the audience.
1: Yeah, so if I can share anything with the listeners, I would, again, thank them for taking the time to to listen to the discussion, the conversation. I would hope that they walk away having received something from it. Um, I would encourage everyone in their own circles of influence to create the types of spaces and environments where people can feel comfortable in their own skin so they can be their authentic selves. And I would encourage them to hopefully do the same so that as other people see you as a role model, they can feel more uh, at ease with being whoever it is that they are. And again, if there are ways for us to connect and continue the conversation, I'd gladly do it. Um, again, Armand, Perry, and I shared all of the social media Armand underscore R uh, Perry on Twitter and Instagram and, and even Facebook as well. So again, I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, and uh, whichever means of communication works best for you, Facebook, Instagram, let me know and I'll put a link underneath the interview. So that people can just after they watch it, they can just click on it and go directly to whatever site you like you like using the most.
1: Okay, well, I, so I, I tend to use Facebook the most because again, okay. brevity is not my strong suit. So Twitter puts that artificial limit on how much you can say, right. uh, which puts me in a box. But so yeah, so Facebook is usually where where I spend most of my time. But I'm trying to do a little bit more because it seems as though. Um, younger people work more with Twitter and Instagram than than Facebook um, so yeah I'm, I'm trying to get acclimated to, to using them all
0: there you go all right well I'll, I'll put a link um, and find you there that way they can find you online so I just want to say thank you man for what you're doing uh, thank you for the amazing man that you are um, I'm inspired by your work uh, glad we've connected Once again, I know it's by divine appointment, and uh, I just want to stay connected uh, so we can continue to work and empower black men to live extraordinary lives. So thank you for spending an hour with us. I appreciate it.
1: Very kind words. Thank you, much.
0: All right. So this has been another episode of Shattered the Stereotypes. So don't believe the hype. Black men are doing extraordinary things. And this show is showcasing all of them, as many as I can get anyway. All right. See you next episode. Take care and tune in next week. Good night.